0: Ah, Maybe the second half of, of the, the show. With at me 20, this 9, Thursday, 9, and Thursday and next Thursday, and we're going to be talking to an investigative, uh, investigative he reporter. Is that he is I local have here in Tampa, but he works uh, uh, f- with the Intercept, and he is also the author of a fascinating book. Ahmed and I, I think spoke to Trevor before that uh, about it. His name is Trevor Aronson. The book is The Fact, The Terror Factory inside the uh, FBI's manufactured war on terrorism. It was quite an interesting book, disturbing book and I remember we had so many comments and phone calls about it and it scared the Muslim community very very much when uh, the book came out and um, uh, Trevor was with us also for uh, the hour. He's also the producer of or part host of the documentary uh, by uh, Al Jazeera and this is what we're going to be listening to. It's called The Informants. He's also uh, uh, I think the host of the documentary podcast, American ISIS, and we're going to be talking about all these things. So let me start by playing a little bit of The Informants. Uh, It was produced in 2014 and it has been seen almost a million uh, times. This is True Talk on WMNF.org
1: FBI thought I was the greatest informant on the planet Earth. They told me to record everywhere.
2: Al Jazeera's investigative unit takes you inside the shadowy world of FBI informants and counterterrorism operations. You will meet the criminals and con men spying on orders from the FBI. I was for them Al-Qaeda. I am representing the Sheikh Osama Bin Laden. We will bring you the story of three informants posing as Muslims who encourage Americans to join plots concocted by the FBI. They are part of a post 9-11 mandate to thwart attacks before they even begin.
3: It literally boils down into, if you cannot find terrorists within the Muslim community, make terrorists, create the terrorists. The FBI is not perfect in running its operations,
1: but they're pretty damn close.
2: We will show how some informants are accused of violating civil liberties and why some Americans refuse to join the FBI's intelligence ranks.
3: I didn't want to be an informant for the FBI for for the same reasons that I think that, you know, the Muslim community should stand up to them. If I felt that there were
2: actual terrorists running around in Toledo, I might feel differently about it. For the first time, you will hear from a man convicted on terrorism charges who is now out of prison
1: and back in his community. There was never no bombs, there was never no weapons, there was never no maps, there was never no plans. You know, it was just a bunch of hogwash. down, stay down.
0: Welcome back to True Talk. This is your host, Sama Jarrah, and I'm very pleased to say that I have in the studio with me uh, Trevor uh, Aronson. He is uh, the voice that you have heard on this uh, amazing documentary. I watched it last night. I think I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I have watched it last night, and we have had the honor of uh, talking to Trevor many years ago when his book, The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. And I remember, Trevor, I asked you, Ahmed and I, at that time, why on earth would the FBI be wasting so much time, millions and millions, if not, maybe I think you mentioned more than billions of dollars on this, if it never really uh, results in anything solid. Uh, And I remember you told me maybe it was... Uh, Because they needed the funding, you know, as an institution related to the government and we have a budget, you have to justify the budget. But still it wasn't very convincing to me and I think you mentioned um, in another article we can talk about that maybe really the FBI at the time hardly had any technology they they used fax machines to send the photos of the uh, accused in September 11 i still want to know why on earth would the fbi be doing this uh, spying on muslims
2: yeah thanks for having me um so the the kind of quick history of the fbi post 911 was that you know as you mentioned prior to 911 um you know Robert Mueller the FBI director at the time had just taken office about a week before the attacks and the previous director was an avowed luddite who had a lot of concerns with giving agents access to the open internet and um giving them access to you know technological tools to, to help them do their jobs and so when 911 happened you know the FBI was so technologically hobbled that it couldn't even email pictures of the people they believed were the hijackers they were quite literally that. faxing them from office to office and and so what happened in response was that after 9/11 there was talk of splitting the FBI into two separate agencies similar to how the British have MI5 and MI6 one tasked with you know investigating crimes and domestic activity the other tasked with counterterrorism and counterintelligence and and Mueller the FBI director persuaded George Bush then the president to keep the FBI as a single agency and and one of the things that they did was then invest in um, technology to to make their um, you know, jobs easier to help them find and prevent the next attack. And one of the 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 tools that they used was this database that existed prior to nine eleven called domain management and domain management was meant to track. Um, immigrants in the United States who were believed to be committing industrial esp- espionage for their mm-hmm. home country. So, such as you know, chi- uh, students from China coming over and studying at Stanford, and then using that access to get access to intellectual property that they could then send to China. Um, and so, they they adapted this program and they pulled in a bunch of um, commercial data. That allowed them commercial and and um, census and and immigration data that allowed them to effectively map the United States according to Muslim communities so they could see you know you know where in the Los Angeles area Muslims lived where in the the Tampa area, and then assign informants and resources accordingly, even though there was no basis to believe that these people posed a threat other than the fact that they were muslim and and what what ended up happening. In the post nine eleven era, that there were there was there was everyone was convinced in the immediate days after nine eleven that there was going to be another attack that nine eleven was was one cell of many that were in this country and this was a pervasive belief for for years after nine eleven and so a lot of the policies that were created to spy on mosques and to and to um, you know recruit uh, informants from Muslim communities were all based on this idea that. Um, you know there were other cells out there, and what they ultimately found was that there there were no such cells, right? Like I think we can you know say pretty definitively now, twenty years later, that what happened on nine eleven, you know, al Qaeda in many ways got extraordinarily lucky that they were as successful in that attack as they were, and, and in the scale of damage and destruction and death. Um, and so you know it was reasonable to think at the time that there may be others, but that clearly wasn't the case. And so what the what the FBI did was they, they realized, as a result of the post9 eleven report or the 9 eleven report that came out by Congress, that, that the, the largest failure that the FBI had was was intelligence, that they weren't gathering the right intelligence, they weren't analyzing it in the right way. you know we all heard the stories about how they had information that these people were learning to fly but not learning to land. I mean all of these things that the FBI knew, and so the the response became like, how do we Build up our intelligence network in Muslim communities, and so what they did was they they created the largest informant network that the FBI has ever had—more than fifteen thousand people, most of them from uh, Muslim communities. And and just to give you a quick historical take, you know, in the drug war, there were um, uh, six thousand informants through the '80s and '90s, and so we thought we saw a threefold increase after 9/11. And these informants were meant to find, you know the next attack but instead of finding actual terrorists they ended up finding people who you know could be persuaded through sting operations to get involved in terrorism and, and what we've seen in the last 15 years is that you know or in the last 20 years I'm sorry counterterrorism in the FBI has gone from this small section that didn't get large amounts of funding to the largest you know portion of the FBI's budget the FBI has about nine billion dollars to spend every year. You know, uh, more than five billion gets devoted to counterterrorism and, and counterintelligence. And the FBI can't really go to Congress every year and say, like, "Hey, we spent five billion dollars and we didn't find many threats." And, and sting operations and informants allow the FBI a very convenient way of saying, like, hey, look at all the terrorists that we found with, with your money. And it creates like a wag the dog scenario, which is not uncommon in Washington generally, right? Like, you know, agencies want to maintain their budgets and so they have five billion dollars sitting there to do this and they can't, they want to preserve it. And so what ends up happening is we have, you know, the, you know, the creation of these kinds of cases where the capacity for you know, acts of terrorism on the defendants that are ultimately found by these informants is highly questionable.
0: How how many are we talking about? Like how many you think there are uh, informants working and lurking in the mosques and in Muslim communities? Like what's the number?
2: Yeah, so it's impossible to give an exact number. I mean, what we do know is that the most recent disclosure, which was in in 2006, was that there were 15,000 informants. And the reason the FBI disclosed that, which is normally a closely held secret, was that they had recruited so many informants that they were they were having trouble uh, you know, keeping track of them. So they went to Congress and said, hey, give us some money to create this software program <laughs> that allows them to <laughs> they effectively... They have an app? They have an app. They have, <laughs> it's actually called Delta. And oh, God. so within the FBI, they have this app. And I... I And I remember an FBI agent I was talking to about this program. I asked him how it works and, and he meant this very jokingly, but it's, it's not, um, it it gets at the truth, which is he said, I can go to a computer right now and type in one-legged Somali and find like the one-legged Somali who lives in the United States and is an informant for us. And we can bring him from whatever, whatever community he's living in. And, and that's what this program allows. So what we know is that, you know, 15 years after the, that the disclosure of, Fifteen thousand informants. You know, it's it's likely safe to assume that it's at that level, uh, if not most likely more. Um, But the FBI doesn't break down how many informants are working in Muslim communities and working in drug investigations. And 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 it is true that some informants will do both of those things—that they'll work counterterrorism as well as organized crime and 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 drugs. Um, But you know, you can extrapolate and say, okay. Roughly 60% of the FBI's budget is devoted to counterterrorism and counterintelligence. There are 15,000 informants. You know, maybe we can assume that like 8,000 are, you know, you know, specifically targeting, you know, counterterrorism, which would be predominantly, as the FBI sees it, you know, investigating Muslim communities.
0: Somebody uh, listening might say, well, we were attacked on September 11. They were horrendous attacks and a lot of people uh, died. But on the other side, I would say really all the planning was from outside the U.S. So maybe it was the CIA that really also failed. And these people... um, I know, I'm not sure how many months they spent in the US and I don't think they were aided by any local mosques or local uh, non-Muslims um, like or even uh, American non-Muslims who um, helped them. So this was more of a CIA failure uh, before it was, in my point of view, a local failure. Because how like uh, we have hundreds of thousands of students who come here every year to study. And other than tourists, I mean, we cannot uh, spy on everyone,
2: right? For sure. So obviously, you know, the the majority of the attackers were from Saudi Arabia. There are questions even to this day to the extent to which the Saudi Kingdom, you know, was behind the nine eleven attacks. I mean, there's an ongoing lawsuit from the fam- the victim, the, the families of the victims that are that are kind of trying to get at that. Um, and so you're right in the sense that it, it. you could argue very easily that 9-11 had not much at all to do with Muslims who were already living in the United States. And so then investigating them just because they were Muslim is very much kind of just a guilt by religious association, right? But the to understand, I think, what happened, it's, it's important to realize that there was a fair amount of um, ignorance about Islam generally within mm-hmm. the FBI and, and certainly a, 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 a certain degree of Islamophobia, right? Like, you know, at the time... Of the 9/11 attacks, the the head of the FBI's counterterrorism division you know shortly after the attacks was asked in a deposition if he knew the difference between sunni and shia islam and he and he admitted that he didn't right mm-hmm. which to me i think that's probably something the the head of the fbi counterterrorism section should should know at the same time we also later real, found out that there were a number of fbi documents that suggested you know uh, you know islamophobia kind of being an overriding theme within how they viewed this you know one of the things that they they described was you know how the more someone was um, the more a muslim was outwardly religious the you know by their dress and their mannerism and the amount of times that they would go and pray at a mosque was Related to the degree to which they were susceptible to becoming terrorists, right? Which is just
0: a which which proved wrong. What these uh, uh, hijackers of the airplanes—they didn't frequent mosques, right? Actually, they, they frequented bars.
2: right? Bars and strip clubs, right? <laughs> right. It's That's the so kind maybe of maybe they need of it. to
0: pick on strip <laughs>
2: right. clubs, right. And bars. And, and so, but what ended up happening was that there there was this this very Islamophobic idea. Immediately after nine eleven, that if, that if you are a Muslim in the United States, that you may well have sympathies for the hijackers mm-hmm. and may well know information about you know other terrorists operating in the in the United States, and you know it, it has a number of problems. Obviously, right? The most significant is that you know unlike say Muslim communities in in europe which are which are very kind of economically marginalized you know the, the 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 muslim community in the united states at that time was like in in you know demographically was was like middle to upper middle class mm-hmm. this was a very prosperous community that had that had largely integrated into the united states in a way that the integration happened much more seamlessly than in places like europe and france for example so there really wasn't this idea that you know you had this economically you know uh disadvantaged group of people that would be attracted to violence and terrorism it wasn't that case at all in the united states and so they were they were making this argument that they were uh, sympathetic to terrorism, you know, simply because they they were Muslim, and and that that became the basis for most of the surveillance that they would they would do. They would go into mosque and and recruit informants, and the informants that they would recruit would be people who they could leverage, right? Some someone who was you know facing criminal charges or immigration issues was perhaps the most common, and they would say to that person, you know, unless you work with us as an informant you know you're going to face this criminal charge or you're going to face deportation and so it creates this this situation where um, the informant is incentivized to try to exactly, find Exactly that's terrorists. what
0: I was going to tell you if somebody comes to me and threatens me that I'm going to be kicked out of the country because I have a violation on my green card application and really there isn't anything going on in my mosque won't I kind of try and set up someone Right to save myself and this relationship
2: right that 's exactly what happened in a lot of these cases i mean what the, what, the, what the FBI did post on eleven was import a tactic that they used to investigate. Uh, you know, you know, drug cartels and organized Mm -hmm. crime, which is like you, you find like a mobster who, you know, stole a car and you say like, Hey, you're going to face five to 10 years unless you become an informant and rat on your friends. Right. And that works because you know, all his friends are actually (laughs) criminals because they're in the mob. Right. And and they, they basically use that same tactic with Muslim communities where they would find, they would find someone who was, who could be leveraged and they would say, okay, fine, you know, find these terrorists. Well, in the absence of actual terrorists they're going to you know find people that can be more easily manipulated and so in in many cases where the FBI has run run sting operations targeting Muslims, it's, it's people who are mentally ill or economically disadvantaged or, uh, recent converts to Islam who have their own kind of mental, mm-hmm. you know, problems and don't understand the religion as well as someone who was, you know, been in it for a longer period of time or perhaps born into it. And then those people are then manipulated into getting, going forward in, in violent plots that where You know, almost universally the FBI provides all of the weapons. You know, most of the people that they, they catch in these plots are not people who had guns of their own, who had, uh, who had bombs, or even if they, you know, had access to someone who could give them guns or bombs, in many cases they didn't even have the money to buy them. And so it was very much the FBI making these crimes possible. But a big part of it was how they would recruit these informants, because these informants, you know, at at some point, you know, you know it's human nature that you know you're gonna take care of yourself, right? So if you're if you're in a situation where you're going to be deported, your family's going to be deported, and you, perhaps you came from a place where that has you know a poor record of human rights, and you mm-hmm. and you and you truly yeah. fear for yourself. You know you can see a situation like yeah, it doesn't make it right that he set this person up, but that's quite literally how it happens. And then these cases are then presented to the public and to Congress as like, hey, look, we 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 stop this terrorist attack. And you know once you start unpeeling it a little bit. It's, yeah. it's, it's clear that these aren't what they're made out to be.
0: I want to play a clip because this happened here in Florida, I think in Miami. And immediately when Ahmed and I, I remember, because whenever we see, uh, I think Gonzalez was uh, at the time, uh, the attorney general, uh, when see, we see breaking news with think, oh my gosh, uh, let's uh, hope it's not something uh, that has to do with Muslims. And then when he started reading the names of these people and then trying to read what they were standing for and I'm thinking, these are not even Muslim people. (laughs) What are they talking about? So, let me just play a segment uh, because I think it's... It's the most ridiculous case, but people really went to prison. So, uh, again, this is a a short segment from the documentary that was produced by Al Jazeera. And uh, Trevor Aronson is the person you might be listening to, but at the moment uh, it's called Informants. And listen to this that was aired all over the USA and the world.
2: According to the government, a major plot was foiled.
1: These individuals wish to wage a, a, quote, full ground war against the United States. That quote is from the investigation of these individuals who also allegedly stated the desire to, quote, kill all the devils we can.
0: So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about this case? Because it was 2006, uh, you know, we have wars going on uh, outside the U.S. And I felt that maybe we needed these events to be used politically uh, on the international scene more than uh, locally. Can you tell us, uh, Aaron, a little bit about this case?
2: Yeah, so this is actually the case that got me interested in this whole subject and was you know the impetus for the research I did for my book. Uh, because at the time, in 2006, I was a reporter in, in Miami for Miami New Times, and this case was announced, and I remember getting a call from my editor, um, the evening before the press conference, and he was like, "These seven guys had been arrested in Liberty City, and they say they're with Al Qaeda." And I remember that the two of us were just kind of incredulous about it because, you know, Liberty City, for people who aren't from South Florida, know a lot about South Florida is was one of the, uh, you know, mid mid twentieth century large scale housing developments, and um, it's you know it's 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 mostly mostly black and Haitian. Um, it, the police presence is pretty overwhelming in there in part because of economic-related crimes. And so the idea that Al-Qaeda would choose to hang out a, a, a group of terrorists there, as opposed to say like you know the the posh suburbs of Broward County, you know where it would be easy to kind of blend in and not be noticed you know it was just ridiculous on its face, and so I remember going to that press conference, and you know it was clear they paraded out these these seven these seven guys who were um all black uh, a few were haitian uh, two were were Haitian citizens, and they had portrayed them as wanting to get involved in this plot to. Take down the Sears Tower in Chicago and bomb the the uh, Miami office of the FBI. You know these guys ran a construction company where they put up drywall and it was like a bad company. They were having trouble paying their bills and they had no access to weapons. And they they weren't even really Muslim. They they practiced uh, this religion you know called Moor Science Temple, which is you know this kind of religion that blends elements of uh, of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and and as a result of that, they had a Quran in their warehouse, and so the FBI just kind of took it as like, hey, they're Muslim enough, right? Even though they weren't really Muslim, and they they assigned this informant named El Assad to go in and pretend to be you know a representative of Osama bin Laden and ask them what they need. And you know these guys, they ran this construction company, but they also had this history of hustling. They were from Liberty City, that's kind of what you did to survive. And for them, they saw this Middle Eastern guy come in and be like, hey guys, I've got $25,000 for you. And that was a lot of money to them. And so they lead this guy along in these conversations with the clear goal, I think, of ripping him off for twenty five. dollars They didn't want to get involved they, in yeah. terrorism. There was a hustle. And um, the FBI at the same time you know tried to make it seem like they were going to get it, go move forward in this plot even though they never moved forward to actually bomb the FBI office or the Sears Tower and and ultimately they took this case to trial and it took 3 trials to gain convictions on 5 of the 7 because the first two trials resulted in hung juries because many of the jurors felt like I did like it's unclear that these guys are are really um are really terrorists and i remember at the time the the I think the second, I'm sorry, the third trial, I believe, ended in 2010 or 2011. And I remember talking to an FBI agent at the time about that particular case. Mm-hmm. And what he had described was that they were closely watching that because it was seen as like a bellwether. Like, if they could convict these guys on terrorism, they could convict Anything. just about anybody. And and in, 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 in truth, like, if you look at the history of FBI stings in the post-911 era, you see this kind of pretty clear uptick in cases after the Liberty City 7 case happened and there was also this kind of refining of tactics. Like one of the problems that they had with the Liberty City case was that they didn't actually get them to walk up to the line where they were about to blow up the building, and that was a weakness of the FBI's case. And so, mm-hmm. what the FBI started doing was taking defendants and the targets of these sting operations up to the line where they would have a cell phone that they believe would, you know, blow up a, um, uh, you know, uh, blow up a building, and you know, ultimately. It it doesn't. Um, the, so I would say, like, if people are interested in Liberty City Seven case, there is a really wonderful satire by the British filmmaker Chris Morris uh-huh. called "The Day Shall Come," and it's 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 a composite of a number of FBI stings like this, but it uses the Liberty City Seven case as kind of the uh, you know the primary kind of example of the template that they used, and it, like a lot of the elements that were in. Uh, the case are are in this this satire uh, that Chris Morris did.
0: I just want to remind our listeners, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. My co-host is on vacation for two weeks. I'm talking to Trevor Aronson. He is a local investigative reporter and writer and he writes for The Intercept. You can uh, Google his name. Uh, He has many interesting uh, documentaries and podcasts, but he is also the author of The Terror Factory. Inside the FBI FBI's manufactured war, uh, war on uh, terrorism, and I think I was—I um, think that was maybe the first book. Uh, I mean, there are so many people who wrote about the FBI spying on Muslims, but I think your uh, book. Uh, which is available even uh, on um, on uh, Audible. You can uh, listen to it, the terror factory inside the FBI's manufactured war on terrorism. And after it, Trevor, I think many books uh, came out. Some of it uh, were uh, written uh, by Muslims. He is also... Uh, the uh, I'm not sure if you're the producer or you're the host of a very fascinating documentary. It's called Informants and it came out 2014 and I played segments of it. And I want to play one more segment because from our conversation, uh, Trevor, I felt that, okay, there are like most informants are Muslims. So it's easy to deceive me into believing another Muslim but there are other people who I have no idea <laughs> how on earth would the FBI think they can fool Muslims into believing that this is really a new convert, uh, and this is a particular case because it reached the Supreme Court, and we're going to be talking about it later on. But I think the guy is Craig Monte. Uh, shall I play a segment and then go back to it because? Sure.
2: Yeah.
0: Because this is. This scares me that they were so naive to think that Craig can really <laughs> find the plot. I mean, uh, just let me play uh, the segment. And again, you can call eight one three two three nine nine six six three, and you can send messages to dj at wmnf.org. And I'm getting messages from uh, Twitter uh, because we are live on uh, Twitter through my account. Let's listen. Uh, to this segment from Informants uh, Al Jazeera investigation.
1: If Soundgarden, Ozzy Osbourne, Van Halen was to keep myself somewhat sane, Craig Monte almost didn't exist anymore.
2: Craig Monte is a human chameleon and a convicted con artist. He pretended to convert to Islam for the FBI in order to work the counterterrorism beat.
1: It had nothing to do with my country, tis the It had to do with. I wanted to be in on the big game and to be paid top dollar for it. That's it.
2: Operation Flex was the code name for Monte's undercover assignment. As a personal trainer, he'd wear people down to get them to open up. He claims an FBI agent encouraged him to portray himself
1: as extremely devout. And he would say, OK, when you pray, when well, you take your right side of your head, and I want you to rub it on the carpet so there's a sore on your head. And do not put a bandage on Let it bleed. Just constantly, just don't even treat it. Let it bleed. And the scab would break. And I have blood sometimes here. That meant that I'm so devout that I don't care about my appearance. The more blood dripped on my my robe, the more serious I was.
0: I'm really, uh, Trevor, trying not to laugh because the mic was on. Can they be that naive? Do yeah, isn't well, I,
2: to have like bleeding foreheads?
0: <laughs> First of all, let me just explain some, you know, because we pray five times a day and uh, you prostrate and your uh, forehead uh, hits the carpet. I mean, some people... Not everywhere in the Muslim world would have this kind of, um, like dry, you know, when you, your elbow is yeah. so dry and the skin is so dry. So, pump, some people I feel like they really do it because <laughs> they want to look religious or something. <laughs> right. Like, very difficult to see it with women, uh, because you know, we have wearing a hijab or a hair cover while we're praying. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's almost impossible. But to bleed, I mean, this is like maybe I feel like they took took a, a very quick lecture, and it was the difference between Sunnah and Shia, and then maybe they saw that some, there is a, during Ashura the Shia beat themselves, so they saw blood they said, mixed the whole thing, and they decided this is how you become religious right. for God's sake. I mean they could have went to a one one world religion class at. USF or anywhere.
2: Right. I mean, and it's, it's you know, obviously Craig Monte was not Muslim uh, nor were the two agents handling him and so it's clear that a lot of this direction Came as a result of an ignorance of the religion, um, but what happened in that particular case? And you know, the the limits of radio are such that like the the listeners can't see Craig Monte. so it's important to describe him. I think, which is like these he's this enormous wall of a man who has you know been in, interested in bodybuilding since he was a teenager. You know, has has consistently used steroids and, and human growth hormone, so he's just this enormous man with a shaved head, um, you know, light white skin. And, uh, you know, I described him in one article as like having the movements of an action figure, like a children's action figure, because he's just like, he's just so muscular and rigid that he doesn't, doesn't have like kind of the fluidity of movement that you normally expect of a person. And so, you know, his story was that he'd been working for the FBI and the DEA for, um, I think a decade and a half by the time Operation Flex started. And for Craig, you know, some, some informants become informants because they are working off a charge or have immigration violations. And other informants do it for the money. And, and it's worth noting that you can make a lot of money as an FBI informant. You know, what we know from FBI documents that have been released is that the FBI can pay you up to $500,000 in a single year. So you can, you know, make some serious money if you're the, in the right position. And so, so Craig Monte had, had been doing that work for years and the FBI as a result of this domain management program that I described earlier, where they were mapping the United States according to Muslim populations, decided that they really wanted to take a look at Southern California's Muslim population, which is among the, the largest, largest in the country, uh, most of it in, in the suburban Orange County area. And so they... They took Craig Monte without having any reason to believe that any of these Muslims in Southern California were committing crimes or involved in terrorism. You know their only reason for suspicion was that that they were that they were Muslim, and so they had Craig pose as um, a man who was born from uh You know, a French Syrian father Mm -hmm. and an American Christian mother, and that you know, his story, his backstory was that his mother's Christianity dominated his childhood, and now as an adult, he was kind of awakening to to realize that that Islam was his path, and so he goes in as a as a white convert into Southern California and just like dives into it, right? And like a lot of converts, you know, would would dress very conservatively, would dress in in thobes, and you know, just spent the next eighteen months. Getting to know Muslims in the community and his shtick, which is why the the FBI named it Operation Flex, was that he was a personal trainer. You know, obviously in in Islam, you know the you know the your body is a temple, and you know the idea that you could then use that to say, okay, to show your kind of religious observance, you need to make sure that your body is fit, and so he would get more devout Muslims to come and work out with him, and it was all just normal and legal like nothing was happening if he would go and play video games with these people he'd work out with them in the gym and and you know he wasn't really getting anywhere related to like plots that would that would happen um and so ultimately, what ha- what ended up happening was Craig. He did bring one case to the FBI. It was an immigration case that they ultimately prosecuted. Um, and he was and in, in, as he says that he was then helping to provide information that the FBI could use to recruit So other when informants. you say
0: immigration, you mean there was a violation uh, on like uh, immigration papers, but not a violation that has to do with terrorism
2: so the, the the one case that came out of Operation Flex was a man named uh, an Afghan born man named Ahmad Yazi. And Niazi had become a U.S. citizen, and on his citizenship application, I think there was a question about whether he had ever associated mm-hmm. with terrorist groups, and he said no, and, and his citizenship was approved. Craig was able to record him allegedly um, talking about how his brother-in-law had been a bodyguard for Osama bin Laden in, in pre-911 Yemen, and that he had actually been in Yemen when um, Osama bin Laden... I'm sorry, he'd been in Afghanistan when Osama bin Laden arrived by helicopter from mm-hmm. Yemen. Um, and so the FBI then used that to prosecute him okay. for you know what's largely believed to be an effort to recruit him as an, an informant. Uh, as they were prosecuting him, Craig Monte ends up getting in the trouble of his own. Uh, he was you know so over the top in his rhetoric with Muslims that actually one mosque called the FBI and was like, "Hey, we've got this suspicious guy named Craig Monte. you should check out." And so that compromised his cover, and then Craig, at the same time, was running this scam where he had ripped off two women at his gym for six figures as part of this this convoluted plot where he said that if they fronted him the money, he would get human growth hormone and double the money in a week, and so he goes to jail for this. To prison, actually, and he claims that the FBI said, "Just do your year in prison and you'll come back out, and uh, everything will be fine and He alleges that the FBI hung him out to dry, and so when he gets out of prison, he calls the media in Southern California and holds this makeshift press conference and says, like "I'm Craig Monte. I spied on the Muslim community in Southern mm-hmm. California without any legal basis um and that as a result causes the, um, the federal prosecutors had dropped the charges against Niazi because Craig was the primary witness. And then also at that time, you know, a lot of Muslim communities, around that time, 2008, 2009, were, were really waking up to the fact that they yeah. were under investigation by the FBI, that there were informants in mosques, and there was this real push to try to find out more about how frequent this was, how, what the rules were. And so the ACLU approached Craig Monte kind of a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation, and asked him to participate in what would ultimately become a class action lawsuit against the FBI. And in that case, the FBI, excuse me, in that case, Craig Monte filed a affidavit where he, you know, described under oath what he did for the FBI and how he targeted Muslims in Southern California, how there was no basis for their targeting other than their religious activity. And that then went before the courts. And you know what the ACLU was trying to do was hold the FBI accountable because it is illegal to, to conduct an investigation of someone based solely on First Amendment protected activity. And so the FBI, in defending itself, said to the federal court like what the ACLU is saying what Craig Monte is saying is is untrue that you know we had other reasons to believe, believe that they were criminals and we would tell you but we can't tell you because the documents that we would need to show you that are st- you know state secrets that if they were revealed would you know put the the, the nation in danger and so the 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 federal court hearing the case, agreed with that and Mm -hmm. said, okay, we're going to dismiss the court, the case out of hand. The ACLU appealed it to the appellate court in San Francisco, which then overruled, saying that, you know, we agree that there's a state secrets privilege, but you can't just use the state secrets privilege to unilaterally dismiss a case without ever having to defend it. And, you know, they prescribed to the, the government that they should use, you know, the same procedures that are used for secret evidence in federal courts from the for- Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And so what's gone before the Supreme Court, and there was a hearing about this in November, is this question... Of whether the government you know what 's before the supreme court isn 't whether it was illegal that the FBI spied on Muslims in southern california what 's currently before the court is whether it 's proper for the for the FBI to be able to claim state secrets privilege in order to just make legislation or make a lawsuit go away without ever having to explain you know the evidence of, of why that you know the, of what their evidence is, and, the way, and what the ACLU is saying is like, we don't want this supposedly, you know, secret document. We just want to like be able yeah. to present our case, the evidence. And so the, the Supreme Court hasn't ruled yet, but this has become, you know, in a wild way, you know, the is has become like kind of the most important kind of legal challenge to the post-9/11. You know, surveillance that we've had. This is the farthest that any particular case I, has gotten.
0: I just want, uh, before we continue, to explain something because I've never heard about it until I read your article uh, again while preparing for the for this interview. Because people know of, uh, you know, after September 11, when they passed uh, these uh, laws, what did, what did they call them? Do you remember? Like they, the Patriot Act? Uh, yeah, the Patriot yeah. Act. What you're talking about is different. This is very American. And I think you mentioned uh, in your article that the state secrets privilege, and I'm quoting here, is a legal doctrine that was built on a lie in 1948. Could you mention that? Because this is part of American history.
2: Yeah, so this we've seen a a far greater use of state secrets privilege in the post-911 era. But this isn't, as you said, this isn't something that originates. It it actually goes back to the World War II era. And, And in that particular case... There was an an Air Force plane um, that was operating with secret navigational equipment that crashed in Georgia. and it not only had um, you know u s Air Force uh, pilots on board, but it also had civilian aircraft operators. And the widows of those aircraft operators who were on the plane that crashed in Georgia sued the government, alleging negligence, saying that you know the reason that their husbands died was because of negligence of the government. And what the government did in nineteen forty eight was to say, It wasn't negligence, but there was a bunch of secret equipment on board, and we can't explain why, you know, the airplane airplane crashed because that would expose these secrets, so you have to dismiss it. And so that went before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court approved it, which was an incredible expansion of what's called executive power, where the executive branch is able to say, like, we're going to make this go away. And that became the state secrets privilege, this idea that the, that there were times that were so sensitive that the government could claim in court that they did not have to provide information. And what's interesting about it is that for, for decades that has, you know, what 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 is state secrets privilege is based on that original case. But then in the mid-90s, the, the report that these widows wanted in 1948 was released uh, through FOIA because it had reached the point decades mm-hmm. later that it was no longer classified. And what came out was that all of these claims that the government had about state secrets in 1948 were all lies there, like, was nothing. there was nothing it was oh. nothing about secret navigational equipment in fact what it showed was that the government was in fact negligent that they had a poor maintenance history on the aircraft and they oh did not main, they, they did not instruct the civilian aircraft operators of how to escape and, and how to, what the escape procedures were and so you know what's interesting to me is that like the government is basically making the same argument now like hey make this lawsuit against the FBI for spying on Muslims go away but we're not going to tell you what our evidence is. We're just going to tell you that it's not true. You know, they made that same argument in 1948 to be the basis for the state secret's privilege. And then decades later, it turns out that they were lying. And so the record of, you know, the U.S. government's record of this isn't really trustworthy in that sense. And what's interesting, obviously, is that we have this entire... You know, expansion of executive power and state secrets privilege that was largely based on what is now known to have been a lie.
0: Let me just remind our listeners, you're listening to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. I'm talking to Trevor Aronson. He's an investigative reporter and writer with The Intercept. He's the author of The Terror Factory Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. A fascinating book, one of the early investigative reporting on the FBI uh, using our tax money uh, to waste it on about 15,000 informants uh, uh, spying on uh, American Muslims and uh, he is also a uh, participant and major uh, um, investigator of the documentary uh, informants. I have several questions for you, Aaron, and actually uh, I got them from uh, Twitter. There is one on the DJ, but Ahmed is not here, so I don't really know how they, to answer. Didn't the same thing happen with Ahmed and the guy who was provoked by informants? So I can't remember... Um, whoever sent that uh, on the, the DJ email but from Twitter they said how did they accept to talk to you? And another question is uh, the first one we mentioned Eli Eli, uh, Eli what, what? El- the informant Yeah like uh, somebody asked me where he was from I listened to his accent sometimes I felt he was from Egypt sometimes I felt he was from Um, like uh, greater Syria area. So the question is, why did they agree to talk to you? And there is the third one, I think he's African-American. So I got these many, everybody wants to know, how did they agree to talk to you?
2: Yeah, so Ali Assad was from Lebanon originally, and he he came to Chicago um, and ended up working as an informant. Um, he has quite the checkered path that we could spend an hour, you know, talking <laughs> about. Talking. Uh, but, you know, so he, you know. Beats
0: his wife, too. Yeah, yeah. There,
2: there, yeah there, he, Just he,
0: for the people to know, you know, what kind of informants are telling on Yeah, <laughs> on so
2: it, it's, import- yeah, it's important to recognize, yeah. obviously, that, you know, informants are never choir boys, right? they are always people who have, you know, are, are often criminals themselves. Um, in, in Ali's case, you know, I had written about the Liberty City 7 case before. I wrote, I wrote my book prior to... Um, speaking with him, and I think, you know, he ended up, in that individual case, he, he ended up talking to me in part because I think I just wore him down over years of trying to get trying. him to talk to me. At the time, he was living in El Paso, um, and, uh, you know, so we, we interviewed him down in El Paso. The other informant in the case, Darren Griffin, was um, a black American who had been hung up on drug charges and that's how he became an FBI informant mm-hmm. and he ended up, you know, posing similar to Craig Monte as um, as a convert who was who was coming in. And so, you know, the you know, the, most informants won't talk to you because they're they're fearful of the FBI. In in these particular cases, you know, I think Craig has his own motivations. I think Craig, you know, see, you know, I think ego is a big part of it for all of these informants is, you know, I think a journalist paying attention to them, giving them a platform to talk about it. I think for some of them, that's kind of an irresistible thing. And and that that's part of why but I think Craig don't
0: they have, sorry for interrupting, but sure. don't they have to like clear it with the FBI or they are independent operators?
2: They're independent operators, okay. right? So, you know, an, an informant is kind of like, aren't in. Employees of the FBI, okay. they're you know okay. they're kind of they, they're they're paid in cash. They can do what they want. I mean, the only the thing that the FBI would have against them would be, um, you know, they would not be able to work anymore with the FBI. Okay. In, in in this particular case, you know, Craig Monte was no longer working with the FBI. I do believe El Assad was in and out of mm-hmm. work with the FBI and the DEA, and Darren Griffin, the other informant. Um, uh, had gone to be to work for a military contractor, and so I think you know for all of these reasons they or for various reasons they chose to to talk to me but it, it is very difficult to get Informants to talk in and FBI agents to talk openly about these cases because you know the FBI in most cases has a lot of leverage over informants. You know they're mm-hmm. either facing you know criminal prosecution or immigration action or you know they're getting pretty big paydays from the FBI and so they don't want to ruin that. And so uh, you know I, I think a, uh, one of the things that we're able to do in informants was be able to kind of open viewers up to this world that is kind of rarely seen because in most cases FBI agents and informants aren't willing to talk about it.
0: In all fairness, uh, uh, was there like any uh, uh, time where they really persecuted people who were criminals and really needed to go to jail in, since you started your investigative reporting on the issue? Like after all these billions of dollars and 15,000 informants, did they really stop a plot, a real one, not a set up one from happening?
2: Yeah, so to this day, there has never been a case. I mean, every case is different, obviously, right? But there's never been a case where the defendant had a weapon and was on the verge of moving forward in a plot, but were it not for the FBI stepping in and stopping them. That's never happened, right? There have obviously been...
0: But like, was there a plan in my head going on? And then when I saw the informant... And I felt he can help me, then I sought his help to help me. Not a setup, like a pure um, thinking of blowing something up here in America. And by coincidence there was an informant and then I reached out to him to help me because I thought he could help me but I didn't know he was an informant
2: so yeah I mean so that happens in sting operations where you know and in often cases these will be people who have their own kind of mental issues well they'll have these fantasies of wanting to
0: commit not people right <laughs>
2: they have these fantasies of wanting to commit acts of terrorism and they'll talk about it in in the cases that we look at specifically with stings it's, it's very unusual for the person to have any sort of capacity you know they often don't have guns they don't have weapons so there it's a lot of talk Talk, right. Okay. It's granted. It's talk that is concerning, and I'm not advocating for a situation where the FBI would just pay no attention to it at all. But at the same time, what ends up happening is that the FBI will use an informant and you know provide that person with everything they need, provide them with the gun, mm-hmm. provide them with the the bomb or the transportation, and then allow them to move forward in the plot. And and, and in the FBI's defense, I think it's it's important to articulate their rationale, which is which is a what they want to do is take someone who is potentially dangerous and wants to bomb something off the street through a sting operation like this. But B, this is kind of an adaptation of the the broken windows theory of law enforcement, which is that by running these sting operations and getting these arrests, any real terrorist out there would be really suspicious of getting involved in a plot with someone else for the fear that this person could be an FBI informant. And what the FBI argues is that this creates kind of a hostile environment for the the hatching of of, of plots. And you know the challenge with that, of course, is that it's really. Difficult to prove a negative. It's difficult mm-hmm. to say, you know, because of these things, there hasn't been, you know, there would have been far worse attacks than there had been. But all we can say is that, like, since nine eleven, there has never been an attack of that scale. But we have seen other attacks that have been carried out, or you know, got very close, such as the. the I think
0: there was one in California. A couple, a a husband and wife. Husband and wife. So and there and was and no informant spying on the right people.
2: Right. So the 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 cases where you know like. Omar Mateen, for example, the guy who shot up the nightclub in Orlando, or uh, Faisal Shahzad, the guy who bombed in Times Square. You know, and the the California couple that you mentioned. You know, the FBI does have a pretty uncanny ability to like not Not ultimately investigate those guys, but uh, but does investigate the people who lack the capacity, right? And what's impossible to say is like the people that lack capacity. Is it possible that were it not for the FBI intervention, they could have become these people? Yeah, I mean that's not impossible, right? But you know, at the same time there has never been that case where the FBI clearly had someone who was uh you know about to strike and they stopped them through this kind of sting there operation. Is
0: obviously somebody who watched informants and asking me well, how did you get to talk to uh, FBI agents? Like some I think some of them were former and I think they helped you even.
2: Yeah, so I mean a lot so a lot of my work is it requires the cooperation of mm. FBI agents and I think it's worth noting that You know, the FBI isn't a monolithic community any more than the Muslims are a monolithic community, right? There's like a diversity Mm of opinion within the institution. And there are a lot of people within the FBI who are um, as critical of these tactics as I am, or you know, are sympathetic to to a degree to the to the criticism I'm I'm making, and so a big part of my job relies on these FBI agents talking to me um, at at times off the record, um, but just so I can understand like the processes within mm-hmm. the FBI um, and and talking to me about how this happened. So you know, in in informants, we did interview two FBI agents who were former FBI agents who were both closely involved in the cases that we looked at. And, you know, in those cases, you know, oftentimes the FBI will shut down, you know, requests for interviews for for various reasons, you know, the FBI is very mm-hmm. concerned about its image and, and making sure it comes off the right way. Um, and then, you know, so oftentimes FBI agents will choose not to cooperate with reporters, but you know, in these particular cases, we're able to find, you know, FBI agents who were willing to talk to us.
0: Okay, I'm going to play a, a segment, don't save. Of uh, a project that you are working on, so please uh, bear with me. I'm trying to find it at the moment here. Where is Aaron? Oh, gosh, I did sign it. Mm. Just a second, please. Oh, God, <laughs> <laughs> I'm lost here. Um, but I, I don't know how you end up with these things. People actually send you just a second, I'm gonna find it in one. Moment, yeah, I logged in. Okay. I'm going to play it now. It's buffering.
2: Who was he, really? And where had he gone? And this, this is Russell Dennison.
3: We were on the front lines.
2: Russell was a white American who converted to Islam while living in Pennsylvania.
3: I was on the corner of a building, and I ended up getting shot by a sniper. He was among the few
2: Americans who traveled to the Middle East to join ISIS, the terrorist group otherwise known as the Islamic State.
3: So the bullet came in my left leg, came out, entered in my right leg, and then exploded in the back of my right leg. It hit the bone and just shattered. And I saw my whole leg just twist in front of me. And it was just hanging on by the skin. So I just dropped and I crawled back around the corner. And the brothers, they took me to the hospital in the back of this truck.
2: For years, the FBI had been searching for Russell. They suspected he was an Islamist extremist. And during some of that time, Russell was secretly communicating with me. If the FBI had found Russell they'd have thrown him in prison. And if ISIS found out he was talking to me, they probably would have had Russell's
3: head. Man, I saw everything. I saw my soul just leave my body. I could see myself just going up away from the earth and looking down on the earth. And I thought to myself, look, I died. It's over. It's finished. And it felt exactly as if like you wake up from a dream.
0: Welcome back to True Talk. We have like uh, less than a minute. Uh, maybe we can talk about it later on. But quickly, Trevor, like in thirty seconds, what is that?
2: Yeah. So oh my it, gosh, it's actually a local story. So Russell Dennison was uh, a man who had converted to Islam and was a, a, a member of the community here. Um, ultimately, leaves the United States uh, and joins ISIS as a fighter. Was one of the one of the first Americans to join ISIS as a fighter. And during the last six months of his life he secretly communicated with me, sending me a bunch of recordings. And so American Isis, which is on um, Audible, it's an eight-part documentary podcast, tells the history
0: WMNF Tampa.